Chapter 11 of Syria, the Desert, and the Sone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Syria, the Desert, and the Sone by Gertrude Bell. Chapter 11. The next day's journey is branded in my mind by an incident which I can scarcely dignify with the name of an adventure. A misadventure, let me call it. It was as tedious while it was happening as a real adventure, and no one but he who has been through them knows how tiresome they frequently are, and it has not left behind it that remembered spice of possible danger that enlivens fireside recollections. We left Kalat el Mudik at eight in pouring rain and headed northwards to Jebel Zawaya, a cluster of low hills that lies between the Orontes Valley and the broad plain of Aleppo. This range contains a number of ruined towns, dating mainly from the 5th and 6th centuries, partially re-inhabited by Syrian fellahin, and described in detail by de Vogue and Butler. The rain stopped as we rode up a low sweep of the hills where the red earth was well under the plow, and the villages set in olive groves. The country had a wide, bare beauty of its own, which was heightened by the dead towns that were strewn thickly over it. At first the ruins were little more than heaps of cut stones, but at Kefir Anvil there were some good houses, a church, a tower, and a very large necropolis of rock-cut tombs. Here the landscape changed, the cultivated land shrank into tiny patches, the red earth disappeared and was replaced by barren stretches of rock, from out of which rose gray ruins like so many colossal boulders. There must have been more cultivation when the district supported the very large population represented by the ruined towns, but the rains of many winters have broken the artificial terracings and washed the earth down into valleys, so that by no possibility could the former inhabitants draw from it now sufficient produce to sustain them. Northeast of Kefir Anvil, across a labyrinth of rocks, appeared the walls of a wonderful village, Kerbet Has, which I was particularly anxious to see. I sent the mules straight to El Barah, our halting place that night, engaged a villager as a guide, over the stony waste, and set off with Mikhail and Mahmud. The path wound in and out between the rocks, a narrow band of grass plentifully scattered with stones. The afternoon sun shone hot upon us, and I dismounted, took off my coat, bound it, as I thought, fast to my saddle, and walked on ahead amid the grass and flowers. That was the beginning of the misadventure. Kabet Haas was quite deserted, save for a couple of black tents. The streets of the market were empty, the walls and the shops had fallen in, the church had long been abandoned of worshippers. The splendid houses were all silent as the tombs. The palisaded gardens were untended, and no one came down to draw water from the deep cisterns. The charm and mystery of it kept me loitering till the sun was near the horizon, and a cold wind had risen to remind me of my coat. But lo, when I returned to the horses, it was gone from my saddle. Tweed coats do not grow on every bush in North Syria, and it was obvious that some effort must be made to recover mine. Amud rode back almost to Kefir Anvil and returned after an hour and a half, empty-handed. By this time it was growing dark. Moreover, a black storm was blowing up from the east, and we had an hour to ride through a very rough country. We started at once, Mikhail, Mahmud, and I picking our way along almost invisible path. As ill luck would have it, just as the dust closed in, the storm broke upon us. The night turned pitch dark, and with the driving rain in our faces, we missed that Medea thread of a road. At this moment, Mikhail's ears were assailed by the barking of imaginary dogs, and we turned our horse's heads toward the point from which he supposed it to come. This was the second stage of the misadventure, and I at least ought to have remembered that Mikhail was always the worst guide, 
even when he knew the direction of the place towards which he was going. We stumbled on. A watery moon came out to show us that our way led nowhere, and being assured of this, we stopped and fired off a couple pistol shots, thinking that if the village were close at hand, the muleteers would hear us and make some answering signal. None came, however, and we found our way back to the point where the rain had blinded us, only to be deluded again by that phantom barking and set off again on our wild dog chase. This time we were still further afield, and heaven knows where we should ultimately have arrived if I had not demonstrated by the misty moon that we were riding steadily south, whereas El Bora lay to the north. At this we turned heavily in our tracks, and when we had ridden some way back we dismounted and sat down upon a ruined wall to discuss the advisability of lodging for the night in an empty tomb, and to eat a mouthful of bread and cheese out of Mahmoud's saddlebags. The hungry horses came nosing up to us. Mine had half my share of bread, for after all he was doing more than half the share of work. The food gave us enterprise. We rode on and found ourselves in the twinkling of an eye at the original branching off place. From it we struck a third path, and in five minutes came to the village of El Bara, round which we had been circling for three hours. The muleteers were fast asleep in tents. We woke them somewhat rudely and asked whether they had not heard our signals. Oh yes, they replied cheerfully, but concluding that it was a robber taking advantage of the stormy night to kill someone, they had paid small attention. This is the whole tale of the misadventure. It does credit to none of the persons concerned, and I blush to relate it. It has, however, taught me not to doubt the truth of similar occurrences in the lives of other travelers whom I have now every reason to believe entirely voracious. Intolerable though El Bara may be by night, by day it is most marvelous and most beautiful. It is like the dream city which children create for themselves to dwell in between bedtime and sleep time, building palace after palace down the shining ways of the imagination, and no words can give the charm of it nor the magic of the Syrian spring. The generations of the dead walk with you down the streets. You see them flitting across their balconies, gazing out of windows wreathed with white clematis, wandering in palisaded gardens that are still planted with olive and with vine and carpeted with iris, hyacinth and anemone. Yet you may search for chronicles for them in vain. They play no part in history, but were content to live in peace and to build themselves great houses in which to dwell and find tombs to lie in after they were dead. That they became Christian, the hundreds of ruined churches and the cross carved over the doors and windows of their dwellings would be enough to show. That they were artists, their decorations prove, and that they were wealthy, their spacious mansions, their summer houses and stables, and outhouses testify. They borrowed from Greece such measure of cultivation and of the arts as they required, find fused with them the spirit of oriental magnificence, which never breathed without effect on the imagination of the West. They lived in comfort and security, such as few of their contemporaries can have known, and the Mohammedan invasion swept them off the face of the earth. I spent two days at El Bara and visited five or six of the villages round about, the sheikh of El Bara and his son serving me as guides. The sheikh was a sprightly old man called Yunus, who had guided all the distinguished archaeologists of his day, remembered them, and spoke of them by name or rather, by names of his own, very far removed from the originals. I contrived to make out those of De Vogue and Waddington, and another that was quite unintelligible was probably intended for Sachau. At Sergilla, a town with a sober and solid air of respectability that would be hard to match, though it is roofless and quite deserted, 
he presented me with a palace and its adjacent tomb that I might live and die in his neighborhood. And when I left, he rode with me as far as Deir Sambil to put me on my way. He was much exercised that day by a disturbance that had arisen in a village near at hand. A man had been waylaid by two others of a neighboring village who desired to rob him. Fortunately, a fellow townsman had come to his assistance, and together they had succeeded in beating off the attack. But in the contest, the friend had lost his life. His relations had raided the robber's village and carried off all the cattle. Mahmoud was of the opinion that they should not have taken the law into their own hands. By God, he said, they should have laid the case before the government. But Yunus replied with unanswerable logic. Of what use was it to go to this government? They wanted their rights. In the course of conversation, I asked Yunus whether he ever went to Aleppo. By God, said he. And then I sit in the bazaars and watch the consuls walking, each with a man in front clothed in a coat with two hundred piastres, and the ladies with, as it were, flowers upon their heads the fashionable European hat, I imagine. I always go to Aleppo when my sons are in prison there, he explained. Sometimes the gaoler is soft-hearted and a little money will get them out. I edged away from what seemed to be a delicate ground by asking how many sons he had. Eight, praise be to God. Each of my wives bore me four sons and two daughters. Praise be to God, said I. May God prolong your life, said Eunice. My second wife cost me a great deal of money, he added. Yes, said I. May God make it yes upon you, O lady. I took her from her husband, and by God, may his name be praised and exalted. I had to pay two thousand piastres to the husband and three thousand to the judge. This was too much for Hajj Mahmoud's sense of proprieties. You took her from her husband, said he. Voila, that was the death of Nasari, or an Ismanli. Does a Muslim take away a man's wife? It is forbidden. He was my enemy, explained Yunus. By God and the prophet of God, there was enmity between us, even unto death. Had she children? inquired Mahmoud. Eh, voila, assented the sheik, a little put about by Mahmoud's disapproval. But I paid two thousand piastres to the husband, and three thousand. By the face of God, exclaimed Mahmoud, still more outraged. It was the deed of an infidel. And here I put an end to further discussion of the merits of the case by asking whether the woman had liked being carried off. Without a doubt, said Eunice, it was her wish. We may conclude, therefore, that ethics did not have much to do with the matter, though he indemnified so amply both the husband and the judge. This episode led us to discuss the unusual price paid for a wife. For such as we, said Eunice, with an indescribable air of social preeminence, the girl will not have less than four thousand piastres, but a poor man who has no money will give the father a cow or a few sheep, and he will be content. After he left us, I rode round Rueha, that I might see the famous church by which stands the domed tomb of Pizos. This church is the most beautiful in the Jebel Zawea, with its splendid narthex and carved doorways, its stilted arches, and the wide-spanned arcades of its nave. How just was the confidence in his own mastery over his material, which encouraged the builder to throw those great arches from pier to pier, is proved by the fact that one of them stands to this day. The little tomb of Bezos is almost as perfect as it was when it was first built. By the doorway an inscription is cut in Greek, Bezos, son of Pardos, I lived well, I die well, and well I rest. Pray for me. The strangest features in all the architecture of North Syria are the half-remembered classical motives that find their way into moldings that are almost gothic in their freedom, 
and the themes of a classical entablature that grace church window or architrave. The scheme of Syrian decoration was primarily a row of circles or wreaths filled with whorls or with the Christian monogram. But as the stonecutters grew more skillful, they ran their circles together into a hundred exquisite and fanciful shapes of acanthus and palm and laurel, making a flowing pattern round church or tomb as varied as the imagination could contrive. The grass beneath their feet, the leaves on the boughs above their heads, inspired them with a wealth of decorative design, much as they inspired William Morris twelve hundred years later. There is another church at Ruea scarcely less perfect than the Bezos Church, but not so splendid in design. It is remarkable for a monument standing close to the south wall, which has been explained as a bell tower, or a tomb, or a pulpit, or not explained at all. It is constructed of two stories, the lower one consisting of six columns supporting a platform, from the low wall of which rise four corner piers to carry the dome or canopy. The resemblance to some of the north Italian tombs, as for instance to the monument of Rolandino in Bologna, is so striking that the beholder instinctively assigns a similar purpose to the graceful buildings at Rueja. We camped that night at Dana, a village that boasts a pyramid tomb with a porch of four Corinthian columns, as perfect in execution and in balanced proportion as anything you could wish to see. On our way from Rueja, we passed a mansion, which I would take as a type of domestic architecture of the 6th century. It stood apart, separated by a mile or two of rolling country from any village, with open balconies facing toward the west and a delightful gabled porch to the north such a porch as might adorn any English country house of today. You could fancy the 6th century owner sitting on the stone bench within and watching for his friends. He can have feared no enemies, or he would not have built his dwelling far out in the country and guarded it only with a garden palisade. At Kasser el Banat, the maiden's fortress, as the Syrians call it, I was impressed more than in any other place with the high level that social order had reached in the Jebel Zawaya. For here were security and wealth openly displayed, and leisure wherein to cultivate the arts. And as I rode away, I fell to wondering whether civilization is indeed, as we think it, in Europe, a restless power sweeping forward and carrying upon its crest those who are apt to profit by its advance, or whether it is not rather a tide that ebbs and flows, and in its ceaseless turn and return touches ever at the flood the self-same place upon the shore. Late at night, one of Sheikh Yunus's sons rode up and asked us whether his father was still with us. On leaving us, that enterprising old party had not, it seemed, returned to the bosom of his anxious family, and I have a suspicion that his friendly eagerness to set us on our way was but part of a deep-laid plot by means of which he hoped to be able to take a hand in those local disturbances that had preoccupied him during the morning. At any rate, he had made off as soon as we were out of sight, and the presumption was that he had hastened to join the fray. What happened to him I never heard, but I am prepared to wager that whoever bit the dust at village El Mugara, it was not Sheikh Yunus. Three rather tedious days lay between us and Aleppo. We might have made the journey in two, but I had determined to strike a little to the east in order to avoid the carriage road, which was well known, and to traverse the country which, though it might not be more interesting, was at least less familiar. Five hours' ride from Dana across the rolling uplands brought us to Tarutin. We passed several ancient sites, reoccupied by half-settled Arabs of the Muwali tribes, though the old buildings were completely ruined. All along the western edges of the desert, the Bedouin are beginning to cultivate the soil and are therefore forced to establish themselves in some fixed spot near their crops. We are become Fellahin, 
said the Sheik of Tartine, and some distant age, when all the world is ploughed and harvested, there will be no nomads left in Arabia. In the initial stages, these new-made farmers continue to live in tents, but the tents are stationary, the accompanying dirt cumulative, and the settlements unpleasing to any of the senses. The few families at Tartine had not yet forgotten their desert manners, and we found them agreeable people, notwithstanding the accuracy with which the above remarks applied to their village of Hayir. I had not been in camp an hour before there was a great commotion among my men, and Mikhail came to my tent shouting, The Americans! The Americans! It was not a raid, but the Princeton Archaeological Expedition, which, traveling from Damascus by other ways than ours, was making for the Jebel Zawea, and a fortunate encounter my camp thought it, for each one of us found acquaintances among the masters or among the muleteers, and had time to talk, as people will talk, who meet by chance upon an empty road. Moreover, the day I spent at Tartine provided me with an admirable object lesson in archaeology. As the members of the expedition planned the ruins and deciphered the inscriptions, the whole fifth-century town rose from its ashes and stood before us. Churches, houses, forts, rock-hewn tombs with the names of dates and death of the occupants carved over the door. Next day, we had a march of ten hours. We went north, passing a small mud village called Helban and another called Mugara Merzeh where there were the remains of a church and rock-cut tombs of a very simple kind. None of these places are marked on Kiepert's map. Then we turned to the east and reached Tulul, where we came upon an immense expanse of flood water, stretching south at least twelve miles from the Macht, the swamp in which the river Kuik rises. At Tulul, some Arab women were mourning over a new-made grave. For three days after the dead are buried, they weep thus at the graveside. Only at Mecca and at Medina, said Mahmud, there is no mourning for those who are gone. There, when the breath leaves the body, the women give three cries to make known to the world that the soul has fled. But beyond these cries there is no lamentation, for it is forbidden that the tears should fall upon the head of the corpse. The Lord has given, and he has taken away. So he went south along the edge of the high ground to a little hill called Tel Selma, where we turned east again and rounded the flood water and rode along its margin to a big village, Moyamat, half tents and half beehive huts built of mud. There is no other material but mud in which to build. From the moment we left the rocky ground on which Tarutin stands, we never saw a stone, never a stone and never a tree, but an endless, unbroken cornfield, with the first scarlet tulips coming into bloom among the young wheat. It was heavy going, though it was soft to the horse's feet. If there are a little more earth upon the hills of Syria and a few more stones upon the plain, traveling would be easier in that country, but he, than whom there is none other, has ordered differently. From Moyamat we rode northeast until we came to a village called Hober at the foot of the spur of Jebel el Has, and here we tried to camp, but could get neither oats nor barley, nor even a handful of chopped straw, and so we went on to Kefir Abid, which is marked on the map, and pitched tents at six o'clock. The villages unknown to Kiepert are probably of recent construction. Indeed, many of them are still half camp. They are exceedingly numerous. About Hober, I counted five within a radius of a mile or two. The Arabs who inhabit them retain their nomad habits of feud. Each village has its allies and its blood enemies, and political relations are as delicate as they are in the desert. My diary contains the following note, at the end of the day. Periwinkles, white irises of the kind that were blue at El Barah, 
red and yellow ranunculus, storks, larks. These were all that broke the monotony of the long ride. About half an hour to the north of Kefir Abid, there is a little beehive village which contains a very perfect mosaic of geometrical patterns. The fragments of other mosaics are to be found scattered through the village, some in the houses and some in the courtyards, and the whole district needs careful exploration while the new settlers are turning up the ground, and before they destroy what they may find. We reached Aleppo at midday, approaching it by an open drain, whether it were because of the evil smell or because of the heavy sky and dust-laden wind, I do not know, but the first impression of Aleppo was disappointing. The name in its charming Europeanized form should belong to a more attractive city, and attractive Aleppo certainly is not, for it is set in a barren, treeless, featureless world, the beginning of the great Mesopotamian flats. The site of the town is like a cup and saucer. The houses lie in the saucer, and the castle stands on the upturned cup, its minaret visible several hours away while no vestige of the city appears until the last mile of the road. I stayed two days, during which time it rained almost ceaselessly. Therefore, I do not know Aleppo. An oriental city will not admit you into the circle of its intimates unless you spend months within its walls, and not even then if you will not take pains to please. But I did not leave without having perceived dimly that there was something to be known. It has been a splendid Arab city, as you walk down the narrow streets, you pass minarets and gateways of the finest period of Arab architecture. Some of the mosques and baths and khans, especially those half-ruined and closed, are in the same style, and the castle is the best example of 12th century Arab workmanship in all Syria. With iron doors of the same period, they are dated, and beautiful bits of decoration. There must be some native vitality still that corresponds to these signs of past greatness but the town has fallen on evil days. It has been caught between the jealousies of European concession hunters, and it suffers more than most Syrian towns from the strangling grasp of the Ottoman government. It is slowly dying for want of an outlet to the sea, and neither the French nor the German railways will supply its need. Hitherto the two companies have been busily engaged in thwarting one another. The original concession of the Raya Kama railway extended to Aleppo and north to Bajik, I was told that the tickets to Brzeek were printed off when the first rails were laid at Rayak. Then came Germany with her great scheme of a railway to Baghdad. She secured a concession for a branch line from Kiliz to Aleppo, and did what she could to prevent the French from advancing beyond Hama, on the plea that the French railway would detract from the value of the German concession. My information, it may be well imagined, is not from the Imperial Chancery, but from native sources in Aleppo itself. Since I left, the French have taken up their interrupted work on the Rayak-Hama line, but it is to be carried forward, I believe, not to Brzeek, but only as far as Aleppo. It will be of no benefit to the town. Aleppo merchants do not wish to send their goods a three days' journey to Beirut. They want a handy seaport of their own, which will enable them to pocket all the profits of the trade, and that port should be Alexandretta. Neither does the Baghdad Railway, if it be continued, offer any prospect of advantage. By a branch line already existing, it was built by English and French capitalists, but it has recently passed under German control. The railway will touch the sea at Mersina, but Mersina is as far from Aleppo as is Beirut. That a line should be laid directly from Aleppo to Alexandretta is extremely improbable, since the Sultan fears above all things to connect the inland caravan routes with the coast, lest the troops of the foreigner, and particularly of England, 
should find it perilously easy to land from their warships and march up country. Aleppo should be still, as it was in the times past, the great distributing center for the merchandise of the interior, but traffic is throttled by the fatal frequency with which the government commandeers the baggage camels. Last year, with the Yemen war on hand and the consequent necessity of transporting men and military stores to the coast, that they may be shipped to the Red Sea, this grievance had become more acute. For over a month trade had been stagnant and goods bound for the coast had lain piled in the bazaar. A little more and they would cease to come at all, the camel owners from the east not daring to enter the zone of danger to their beasts. Here, as in all other Turkish towns, I heard the cry of official bankruptcy. The government had no funds wherewith to undertake the most necessary works. The treasury was completely empty. Though my stay was short, I was not without acquaintances, among whom the most important was the valley. Chazim Pasha is a man of very different stamp from the valley of Damascus, to the extent that the latter is, according to his lights, a real statesman, insofar as Chazim is nothing but a fasur. He received me in his harem, for which I was grateful, when I saw his wife, who is one of the most beautiful women that is possible to behold. She is tall and stately, with a small dark head, set on magnificent shoulders, a small straight nose, a pointed chin, and brows arching over eyes that are like dark pools. I could not take mine from her face while she sat with us. Both she and her husband are Circassians, a fact that had put me on my guard before the valley opened his lips. They both spoke French, and she spoke it very well. He received me in an offhand manner, and his first remark was, Je suis le jeune pacha qui a fait la paix entre les églises. I knew enough of his history to realize that he had been Mutsarif of Jerusalem at a time when the rivalries between Christian sects had ended in more murders than are customary, and that some kind of uneasy compromise had been reached, whether through his ingenuity or the necessities of the case I had not heard. How old do you think I am? said the Pasha. I replied tactfully that I should give him thirty-five years. Thirty-six, he said triumphantly, but the consuls listened to me. Mon Dieu, that was a better post than this, though I am valley now. Here I have no occasion to hold conferences with the consuls, and a man like me needs the society of educated Europeans. Mistrust the second, an oriental official, who declares that he prefers the company of Europeans. I'm very Anglophil, said he. I express the gratitude of my country in suitable terms. But what are you doing in Yemen? he added quickly. Excellency, said I, we English are a maritime people, and there are but two places that concern us in all Arabia. I know, he interpolated. Mecca and Medina. No, said I, Aden and Kuwait. And you hold them both, he returned angrily. Yes, I am bound to confess that the tones of his voice were not those of an Anglomaniac. Presently he began to tell me that he alone among pashas had grasped modern necessities. He meant to build a fine metalled road to Alexandretta. Not that it will be of much use, thought I, if there were no camels to walk in it, like the road he had built from Samaria to Jerusalem. That was a road like none other in Turkey. Did you know it? I had but lately traveled over it and seized the opportunity of congratulating the maker of it, but I did not think it necessary to mention that it breaks off at the bottom of the only serious ascent and does not begin again till the summit of the Judean Plateau is reached. This is all that needs to be said of Kiazim Pasha's methods. A far more sympathetic acquaintance was the Greek Catholic Archbishop, a Damascene educated in Paris and for some time cure of the Greek Catholic congregation in the city, though he is still comparatively young. 
I had been given a letter to him, on the presentation of which he received me with great affability in his own house. We sat in a room filled with books, the windows opening on the silent courtyard of his palace, and talked of the paths into which thought had wandered in Europe. But I found to my pleasure that for all his learning and his long sojourn in the West, the archbishop remained an oriental at heart. I rejoice, said he, when I was ordered to return from Paris to my own land. There is much knowledge but little faith in France, while in Syria, though there is much ignorance, religion rests upon a sure foundation of belief. The conclusion that may be drawn from this statement is not flattering to the church, but I refrain from comment. He appeared in the afternoon to return my call. From the valley downwards, all must conform to this social obligation, wearing his gold cross and carrying his archiepiscopal staff in his hand. From his tall brimless hat, a black veil fell down his back. His black robes were edged with purple, and an obsequious chaplain walked behind him. He found another visitor sitting with me in the inn parlor, Nicola Homsi, a rich banker of his own congregation. Homsi belongs to an important Christian family settled in Aleppo, and his banking house has representatives in Marseille and in London. He and the archbishop between them were fairly representative of the most enterprising and the best educated classes in Syria. It is they who suffer at the hands of the Turk, the ecclesiastic because of the blind and meaningless official opposition that meets the Christian at every turn. The banker because his interests call aloud for progress, and progress is what the Turk will never understand. I therefore asked them what they thought would be the future of the country. They looked at one another, and the archbishop answered, I do not know. I have thought deeply on the subject, and I can see no future for Syria, whichever way I turn. This was the only credible answer I have heard to any part of the Turkish question. The heir of Aleppo is judged by the sultan to be particularly suitable for pashas who have fallen under his displeasure at Constantinople. The town is so full of exiles that even the most casual visitor can scarcely help making acquaintance with a few of them. One was lodged in my hotel, a mild-mannered dyspeptic whom no one would have suspected of revolutionary sympathies. Probably he was indeed without them, and owed his banishment merely to some chance word reported and magnified by an enemy or a spy. I was to see many of these exiles scattered up and down Asia Minor, and none that I encountered could tell me for what cause they had suffered banishment. Some, no doubt, must have had a suspicion, and some were perfectly well aware of their offense, but most of them were as innocently ignorant as they professed to be. Now, this has a wider bearing on the subject of Turkish patriotic feeling than may at first appear. For the truth is that these exiled pashas are very rarely patriots paying the price of devotion to a national ideal, but rather men whom an unlucky turn of events has alienated from the existing order. If there is any chance that they may be taken back into favor, you will find them nervously anxious, even in exile, to refrain from action that would tend to increase official suspicion. And it is only when they have determined that there is no hope for them as long as the present sultan lives that they are willing to associate freely with the Europeans or to speak openly of their grievances. There is, so far as I can see, no organized body of liberal opinion in Turkey, but merely individual discontents founded on personal misfortune. It seems improbable that when exiles return to Constantinople on the death of the sultan, they will provide any scheme of reform or show any desire to alter a system under which, by the natural revolution of affairs, they will again find themselves persons of consideration. There is another form of exile to be met with in Turkey, the honorable banishment of distant appointment. To this class I fancy belongs Nazim Pasha himself, 
and so does my friend Muhammad Ali Pasha of Aleppo. The latter is an agreeable man of about 30, married to an English wife. He accompanied me to the valley's house, obtained permission that I should see the citadel, and in many ways contrived to make himself useful. His wife was a pleasant little lady from Brixton. He had met her in Constantinople, and there married her, which may, for aught I know, have been partly the reason for his fall from favor, the English station not being against Grada at Yildiz kiosk. Muhammad Ali Pasha is a gentleman in the full sense of the word, and he seems to have made his wife happy. But it must be clearly understood that I could not, as a general rule, recommend Turkish Pashas as husbands to the maidens of Brixton. Though she played tennis at the tennis club and went to the sewing parties of the European colony, she was obliged to conform to some extent to the habits of Muslim women. She never went into the streets without being veiled, because people would talk if a Pasha's wife were to show her face, said she. We reached the citadel in the one hour of sunlight that shone on Aleppo during my stay, and were taken round by polite officers, splendid in uniforms, and clinking swords and spurs, who were particularly anxious that I should not miss the small mosque in the middle of the fortress, erected on the very spot where Abraham milked his cow. The very name of Aleppo, said they, is due to this historic occurrence, and there can be no doubt of its Arabic form, Haleb is composed of the same root letters as those that form the verb to milk. In spite of the deep significance of the mosque, I was more interested in the view from the top of the minaret. The Mesopotamian plain lay outspread before us, as flat as a board. Euphrates' stream is visible from the tower on a clear day, and indeed you might see Baghdad but for the tiresome way in which the round earth curves, for there is no barrier to the eye in all the great level. Below us were the clustered roofs of Bazaar and Khan, and here and there a bird's-eye glimpse of marble courtyards, and here and there the fine spire of a minaret. Trees and water were lacking in the landscape, and water is the main difficulty in Aleppo itself. The sluggish stream that flows out of the Macht dries up in the summer, and the wells are brackish all year round. Good drinking water must be brought from a great distance and costs every household at least a piastre a day, a serious addition to the cost of living. But the climate is good, sharply cold in winter, and not over-hot for more than a month or two in summer. Such is Aleppo, the great city with the high-sounding name and the traces of a splendid past. End of chapter 11